Welcome to the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast series at the America Centrum Hamburg. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. In each episode of this series, my guests and I will discuss a work of literature set primarily in Chicago. And for this episode, we'll be discussing The Coast of Chicago by Stuart Dybeck, which was first published in 1990. My guest today is Gregory Miller. Gregory Miller is an educator and avid reader. He was a classroom teacher for 12 years and now works in a nonprofit community organization doing outreach. His passion and work has been to create community-based opportunities for young people who haven't found success in traditional education. Welcome, Greg. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> Thanks for welcoming me to my own podcast. Um, <laughs> today, we're going to discuss The Coast of Chicago by Stuart Dybeck. As I said, uh, it was first published in 1990. There's, I mean... Uh, there's a lot of things to to talk about here, and it, it's a really exciting book of short stories. Most, if not all, of those short stories are set in the Pilsen neighborhood of Chicago, which is itself an, a very interesting. It, it is a very interesting neighborhood now. It was a very interesting neighborhood in 1990. A lot of the stories here are set kind of in the 50s and 60s, um, and it was also a very interesting neighborhood then. And it, you lived in Pilsen. Um, so I wonder maybe that's uh, yeah. a good place to start. It's just uh, tell us a bit about the, the neighborhood of Pilsen for people who don't know it. Yeah, Pilsen's a it's a fascinating neighborhood. It's on the southwest side of Chicago, not too far from downtown in the scheme of things. The main the main dragon, Pilsen, uh, what is kind of called Pilsen today, is 18th Street. In the in the book, his his uh, his area of Pilsen includes what's called Little Village as well, uh, which is Twenty uh, Sixth Street uh, is kind of the the main drag in, in that area. But they're fairly contiguous neighborhoods nowadays. Vast majority of residents are of Mexican descent. Pilsen has at this point a lot of second, third generation families uh, living there. Little Village has had more is beginning to become, you know, second and third generation, but a little more recent immigration. So really that's kind of the entry point for uh, Chicago's very, very large Mexican population is centered around Pilsen and Little Village uh, today, mm -hmm. uh, which is a process that started in the 60s, which kind of when the book takes place. And so you see that throughout the book here, there's like his his friends kind of represent the the flow of that that community at that time, which is before it was a Mexican neighborhood, it was... Um, I guess Slavic neighborhood. Uh, so Pilsen, the name might suggest that it's uh, you know it has a lot of Czech or Bohemian immigrants mm -hmm. coming into it, a lot of Poles, Germans as well. So it's you know like Chicago, it's uh, you know these ethnic neighborhoods that are very continue to be, yeah, very you know kind of holding onto their traditions, uh, immigrants. So it's it's changed over time, and it started to change a lot in the '60s from being uh, European. Uh, immigrants to to primarily Mexican immigrants. Yeah, that that change, that sense of shifting neighborhoods and shifting ethnicities, and also the kind of overlapping of those different ethnic and cultural identities is a is it's not the only focus of these stories by a long shot. But it's it's definitely. In fact, I'm not even sure if it is. A, having just said it's a focus, I'm not sure even it, it is a focus so much as part of the fabric. Of these stories, mm -hmm. and I suppose it's a subtext my... of uh, yeah, it's a subtext of each story. There's kind of some element, and it may or may not play a yeah, you know, a it's like the, role. The, the groups of of friends that we see traversing these neighborhoods are often themselves um, a mix of ethnicity. Sometimes within one character, there's one character who is half Mexican and half Polish. You know, he's like a literal mm -hmm. representation of this kind of <laughs> flux, and there's. 
there's a line in the story Hot Ice, which we might end up discussing in more detail at some point, but this is on page 132 of the book. And there's a line that I think encapsulates the kind of thing you were just talking about. Um, so this line in the story is about the story, but it's really about the neighborhood and, and kind of reflects the way you were just talking about it. He says, nobody was there, just the wall, railroad tracks, the river, and the factories that lined it. Boundaries that remained intact while neighborhoods came and went. So there's like this idea that the physical, there's this the physical space of the city or the neighborhoods um, that don't really change. The river is going to be there. The railroad tracks aren't moving. The buildings are all there. I mean, buildings come and go these days, but um, at least for the purposes of this story, the, the the buildings are all intact. But the the neighborhood and the sense of what it, the neighborhood means is shifting through this physical space. I think it's a really interesting and kind of useful idea for thinking not just about the fiction here, but about this, like what the fiction says about the city or what a, what a city even is. Um, I don't know what, what you think about that or. Yeah. He, yeah, there's this, um, I mean, there's, it's fascinating. And I, I'm, you know, having, having lived uh, briefly in that area and, and, and really loved that kind of, you know, it's a, it was a cool time in my own life personally. Uh, and so it's, you know, that's the, that I met, I lived there when I met my wife. And so there's a certain uh, halo that it has in my own <laughs> personal memory. Um, but the, but the physical space, uh, there is just fascinating and he, he's really attuned to it. Um, and it, it's interesting to me how much, you know, what he's describing, there's a continuity in the spaces. I mean, he, the, the one of the, um, places where he lived is his grand, I think it was his grandmother's house. Uh, the first, the first story in here, the um, what's it, Chopin and Winter, mm -hmm. is set uh, at his grandparents' uh, apartment on uh, 18th Street, which is this like huge, icon kind of iconic building on on 18th Street. It's right across from uh, what I think is the, the best coffee shop in the city of Chicago, uh, the Jumping Bean. But it's it's still there. It's this sort of I don't know what you would call it architecturally, maybe bow arts or something like that. But this big, you know, it's kind of bigger than the other buildings. But it's looming there. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's still. It was in the, as when the story is set. I think in the early '60s, maybe it's already an old building, right? And it's full of all these old immigrants and these. Uh, what do they call it? What's the Polish word for grandma? Oh, I've forgotten because the grandfather is called Jaja, and I've I've forgotten entirely. Bub, Bub. Oh, Bubcha actually is what neither Polish friend his mother was called Bubcha. Maybe that's what the problem. They think they had a different nickname though. But uh, yeah, there's this continuity of the of the buildings, but the the, the neighborhood flows, and and it's you know maybe we could talk about this at some point here too. Is, you know, gentrification is a is a huge issue in, in the Pilsen area as it is in so many so many neighborhoods in the city. And so there's a you know continued change in who lives there and who benefits from growth. This this short story called Blight really highlights yeah kind of that. I was going to say that's a good uh, segue. You've you've made it into your own segue instead of uh, letting me make it into my segue. It doesn't matter. I was going to say I was, I was just like waiting for my moment to say oh that's a good segue to talk about Blight. Let's talk about Blight. Um, you've done my hard work for me. This is the opening sentence of that story, which tells the whole story in in one sentence, which is something that I really like says during those years between Korea and Vietnam, when rock and roll was being perfected, our neighborhood was proclaimed an official blight area. 
And like that's the the whole story is there in one sentence and is it um, and we can talk about all the ways let, let's just talk about the story. It's about these kids. there's not a lot of plot to this story. Um, uh-uh. It's quite uh-uh. a long story with not much plot, which I really like. And it's just about a group of kids kind of um, in their, I guess, early teenage years, wandering around their neighborhood. The guy narrating the story is looking back on this time from a, uh, from a later in his life because um, he's he comments a few times on what he was doing then and, and in relation to mm-hmm. not specific things he's doing now, but you, you just feel the, the sense of, a lot of time has passed. You, you described your time in Pilsen as a, having a halo because of who you were and what you were doing and, uh, and so on at that time. And, and there's a certain aspect of that kind of halo of, of looking back in, in mm-hmm. the narration here. There's, I think it's one of the things I think is interesting about um, Dybeck in general is that he often has this, um, a tone of what I want to kind of call semi nostalgia. Cause it's not, it's not a purely sentimental or overly sentimental nostalgia, like, oh, things were so much better then. But there's a certain, there is a certain fondness. I think, you know, I, I'm going to borrow your term again, halo. There's like a, this, this light around the tone uh, of looking back, even when the things that, are, that he's looking back on aren't necessarily nice things. Mm-hmm. But seeing them for, for being something that's worth preserving nonetheless and has a value in it. And and that's kind of what this story is about. It's, you know, the, the title is blight. You get it right there. It was the store, the, the neighborhood was proclaimed an official blight area. I don't know if you want to talk about what that means for people who might not understand. Uh, blight. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's connected to, um, Kind of in the 1960s, you know, a lot of cities were, um, oh, what's, what was the, the term? It's kind of euphemistic now. Uh, revitalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, they, you know, this idea of revitalizing neighborhoods. It was also the time of building the, the Eisenhower Interstate uh, Expressway system, uh, which part of revitalization was just the total destruction of neighborhoods. So you had to the north of Pilsen, you had, uh, you know, what is the Eisenhower expressway coming in from you know in downtown into the city from the western suburbs uh you had as well as the uh i guess it's the dan ryan uh, mm-hmm. 94 cutting off the eastern side of the neighborhood you also had the university of illinois chicago being developed and this big campus so that kind of took the corner where those two those two expressways intersect essentially became uh uic and so that that kind of precipitated a lot of movement of people, destruction of, of neighborhoods, and that's it's almost the catalyst for for the changes that, that are that go on through that neighborhood. And I think yeah. in some ways it's really the catalyst for everything that's happening in, in this in this story and a lot of these stories is uh, the the writer in me wants to dissect almost every word of this sentence. Our neighborhood was proclaimed an official blight area and it's you know it's passive tense. Totally. So like so like yeah. the neighborhood the neighborhood isn't declaring itself. Like someone is declaring it. It's 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 something that's happening to the neighborhood. And you think like, well, like who by whom? Like I don't like it when my students write in passive voice. I'm like by whom? Oh, yeah. You know, you're 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 pushing away responsibility. But the the next sentence is a new paragraph and it says Richard J. Daly was mayor then. <laughs> and like you so you know there's no there's no question about who, um, and and I think that's an important part of this is that, you know, it was 
it was proclaimed an official blight area by someone who could use that designation to enrich his cronies, you know, that if it's a blight area that depresses property prices, you can buy up land for cheap or the city can say, well, this is blight and we're taking it over. And they come in with the wrecking balls and developers start making money by building things on them or not building things on them. Yeah, no. And that's, uh, and that's precisely the history of, of that, of that neighborhood, especially that kind of North Eastern, Eastern area of it, but it kind of it continues to expand. But yeah, and then the way that people experience it is, you know, these it is a passive voice because they're for the most part mm-hmm. didn't have a voice, you know, subsequent to the, when these stories take place, you, you find, you know, Pilsen starting in the eighties became a hotbed of community organizing. Mm-hmm. And because up to that point it had, they had no voice, right. It was yeah. just passive. Somebody made decisions and, you know, homes got taken and people were forced to move. So they did organize, you know, in response to that. So I was going to say, there's a great account of, of the predecessor to that 1980s community organizing in um, Mike Royko's book, Boss, which we'll discuss mm. in another part of this series. Is, it's got a great account of the, the tearing down of, of neighborhoods to build the university and, and uh, some of the people involved in that. And there's also in Studs Terkel's book, Division Street America, there's some really mm-hmm. good stuff, some interviews with the, the some of the leaders of that movement about, you know, they're just, they're really, it's really interesting because they're normal people. They're, they're just people who are living their lives. who don't think of themselves as community leaders mm-hmm. who have this kind of thrust upon them um, again, in a kind of passive voice way. And they take, they see that they need to become active participants in order to save their save their friends, save their neighborhoods. Um, that's not what these kids are doing in Blight. I guess we should talk about the story. No, they're, they're, <laughs> they're doing back. the opposite of saving their neighborhood. I love it when they're like, hey, what is this Blight? You know, like this has nothing to do with ecstasy. Uh, yeah, and they're like, let's go look for Blight. And they're going around and like, what? These are like the trees and the weeds have always been here. Nothing's changed. And then and then they're like, they're like, oh, there's no Blight around here. And then immediately what do they do? Like, well, there's this Chrysler that somebody had, you know, abandoned in the, you know, down the block from us. And we started mm-hmm. taking it apart and using pieces of the windshield wiper wiper to hit each other with and uh you know it's sort of like there's this like comical like lack of self-awareness of what Mm -hmm. like what the uh kind of the bureaucrats would consider blight yeah that's their world it's their world and they and they the thing that i really love about this story is it's that they they create from the blight this this so this story is in a lot of his stories, one of the things I really love about his stories is that they're they're often about music in some way. Mm-hmm. Music always is playing a very big role in Dybeck's stories. So Chopin and Winter, which you alluded to earlier, is entirely about it's about someone playing a piano uh, in the in the apartment upstairs and hearing the the music traveling down the the um, pipes of the building and and she's playing. She's a she's been to university and come back. Um, she's been on, on, a, on a scholarship that she's lost because the the young woman has become pregnant and she won't say who the father is. And she's upstairs playing these um, Chopin um, pieces all night. And and this boy is talking about it with his grandfather. And so it's, it's entirely about music, that story. And about the mm-hmm. music of, you've already talked about the building that that's set in. And it's about the music of not just 
literally Chopin's music and the kind of thing, but it's about the music of those relationships between this this older girl who lives in the building and this younger boy who kind of is fascinated by her and enamored of her and the relationship between him and his deadbeat grandfather who's come to stay for a temporary time <laughs> and the relationship between the deadbeat grandfather and the rest of the family and 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 the music is kind of the, the sound of the city literally is is one of the things tying it together but in blight they they're literally constantly making music out of out of the blight you know they make they literally make music out of that car you were just talking about yeah they start using it for rhythm as they, I love it. And the viaducts underneath, you know, cause you've got yeah. to the north of 18th street, you have this, you know, large rail yard because there, there are a lot of old steel mills that were closing down by the fifties. But so you've got a lot of, you got this rail infrastructure, international harvester. So McCormick, uh, Reaper, you know, kind of the beginning of labor movement in the United States all this stuff happens in that area there. You got these huge rail infrastructure. So you got these, viaducts where you might have you know in some areas you know 20 different you know 20 tracks all together and so a viaduct that lasts for a quarter mile um others but for the most part at least three or four tracks going across so these pretty deep bridges uh that make for really great echoes uh the kind of thing that mm -hmm. you know i don't know i don't know about you but whenever i go into those kinds of things i always feel compelled to like make some sort of uh oh, yeah. some sort of noise just to, you gotta just test to the acoustics the yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it's and, really uh, disappointing. That's what doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sometimes it's like, oh, that's pretty dead. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's, but when you but when you nail it, it's really exciting. This like, is my oh, favorite paragraph in this entire spot. book. Yeah, exactly. This is my this is my favorite paragraph in this entire book. Is is this moment because it's it's um, all these things are kind of coming together. This is page forty eight. We'd stand at the shadowy mouth of the viaduct, peering at the greenish gleam of light at the other end of the tunnel. The green was the grass and trees of Douglas Park. Pepper would begin slamming an aerial or board or chain off the girders, making echoes collide and ring, while Ziggy and I clunked empty bottles and beer cans, and all three of us would be shouting and screaming like Screamin' Jay or Howlin' Wolf, like those choirs of unleashed voices we'd hear on Jam with Sam's late night blues show. So like all the things, all the things they're using as instruments, it's like the girders of the viaduct, it's broken or like empty beer bottles, it's the aerial that they've ripped off the car that you mentioned earlier, the chain that they found lying on the ground. They're you're literally using the things of light to make music and to make exciting mm -hmm. music. And I'm going to read a little further. Sometimes a train stream by booming overhead like part of the song, and we'd shout louder yet. And I'd remember my father telling me how he could have been an opera singer if he hadn't ruined his voice as a kid imitating trains. Once a gang of black kids appeared on the Douglas Park end of the viaduct and stood harmonizing from bass through falsetto, just like the coasters, so sweetly, though at first we tried out shouting them, we finally shut up and listened, except for Pepper keeping the beat. We applauded from our side, but <laughs> stayed where we were, and they stayed on theirs. That's that that border stay the same, but the neighborhood shifting. That's one of those moments, those kind of liminal moments in between things. And there's this uneasiness that's transformed by the music. And and the and the the music that's transforming it is coming from them, and I really love that. I just think it's a, a just a beautiful evocation of so many like layers of meaning of a, of urban space and the people in urban spaces. And I um it, like he does this kind of thing a lot, Stuart Ty, because it's a, a thing that he's a real master of. Is that kind of I guess the poetic image of those things and 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 the resonances of those things and the kind of dreaminess 
of them. And I, that, to me, that paragraph is just, it's the best. Yeah. I, 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 that one, I also, is one that I highlighted because it's, it's so Chicago. Yeah. I'm sure you could probably say this in other cities, but it, but it like the, the particularities of that, all the different things you, you were saying about the kids and kind of using the, the artifacts of their life to, to create something. Dybeck talked about the, how the city, the Chicago, you know, <clears throat> people talk about it being a, a city of neighborhoods and he often thought of it as a city of borders. Yeah. And <clears throat> the viaduct there, you know, Douglas Park uh, is part of what's called North Lawndale and is a, you know, 98% African-American community. So that's to the north of the, the railroad tracks there. And then sometimes Little Village, Little Village is directly south of that down California. I assume this is a California Street Viaduct and there's a mm-hmm. there's an L station there. That's where I used to get off to go to work. And to the south there used to be, that's Dybeck lived down there for, for a while too in his life. And so that was Polish. There's an Italian section there, um, uh, Czech, German. But by this time, it's the the poles, you know, to the on the south side of the viaduct there, are, are leaving, uh, and to the north there, around Douglas Park, uh, is transitioning. It had been a, a actually very Jewish neighborhood. So nowadays, most of the the big Baptist church up there are are old synagogues, you know, with you know uh, the Ten Commandments in stone and Hebrew above the above the doors. And so that's all happening, kind of transit. That transition's all happening right there at, at the California Street Viaduct. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, he, which comes up in some other stories, and he's got one in, in another book of his that I read recently. And this amazing description of a band, marching band, going a little bit too far through the viaduct, <laughs> getting a little too carried away. <laughs> it's, it's just fantastic. The kind of the clash of of two na- neighborhoods coming together again with music. It's funny you said that this is um, like strikes you as a particularly Chicago thing and i think you're not wrong there there's another thing that's in this story that comes up again in hot ice that you also see in other works of chicago literature which i might come back to that i think is also a very chicago thing and certainly part of my like own and your own chicago i'm going to tell you about your own experience chicago experiences (laughs) i'm only saying it because because we've done it together but um it's about like going to the lake and like there's a really nice carl sandberg poem so there's another episode in this series where we talked about poetry of Carl Sandburg. And one of the poems we didn't talk about in that is called The Harbor. And it's about break coming through the skyscrapers with people sort of huddling in the doorways and stuff, and then breaking out at the lakefront and the and the gulls are wheeling and the the waves are crashing. And like and it it's a really nice poem because it just it gives you the sense of what the lake means to the city where you come out of buildings and then you hit the lakefront and it's there and it's big and the sky seems endless and the water seems endless and you, you see this image come up again and again in literature um so that's i mean that's poem which counts as literature i'm pretty sure but um so like <laughs> yeah, there's we'll a there's it. a key scene in uh studs lonigan uh by james t farrell where they were where Studs and his friend Kenny go mm-hmm. out, um, they take the. It's kind of the same journey that these guys make from a very similar part of town. That they're a little further south, I think, in, in Studs Lonigan. Uh, they're like at forty third, forty second, forty third, something like that. But they they come up on the streetcar and they go swimming, and it's about this the kind of freedom they feel outside of their neighborhood, which is again, it's one of these neighborhoods that's transitioning from Jewish and Irish to Italian and African American, and all these things are kind of happening, and there's lots of tension in it, you know. The 1919 race riots are are the the flashpoint for them was 
kids swimming in the lake and enjoying that freedom and then the you know it being exploded it's the 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 freedom is always a delicate thing in this story you you have to you know you have to come back to blight and they want to come back to blight they're always coming you know the it's a refrain through the story back to blight back to blight and every time he says it it means something slightly different it's always got a double meaning to it um just kind of a light touch double meaning because it's always literal and there's always something about the kind of resonance of what blight means that's different but um mm-hmm. they go to oak street beach and they say <laughs> which i love his description of it because it's totally he, he says the discerning <laughs> the beach for discerning individuals yeah, or something uh, it's like that's totally true it's it's um, it's the bottom of 44 <laughs> go ahead and read it out <laughs> oak street beach which we regarded as the beach the beach of choice for sophisticates <laughs> beach of choice which for sophisticates like, totally that's why we went there when we were kids right like <laughs> totally that's exactly why we went there that was the beach of choice for us sophisticates and i love you know it's like you know that's the classy beach yeah he's got another i know we're not talking about uh i sailed with magellan but his story uh we didn't mm-hmm. one of the best short stories uh, yeah. i've ever read uh takes place on oak street beach but I love the going. You're talking about the kind of the coming yeah. and going between the two. Is it Blight where he, or is it another one where he he winds up having a girlfriend for a period of time who lives up? Yeah, the that's north in side? Blight. That's it's it's just a little bit after this part. I want to just like look at the description of Oak Street Beach. He says, um, "At the Oak Street Beach, the city seemed to realize our dreams of it, which I just love." It seemed seemed to realize our dreams of it. The like again, it's this moment where like you're no longer in this blighted neighborhood where you make music out of junk except the making the music out of junk the city is realizing your dreams of it too and it's just these spaces where where it's not that time stops but like a sense of your sense of yourself in relation to the city changes and the city becomes something better than what it is actually and these stories do that again and again that i guess the point i'm driving towards is the way that that these things that are seemingly grubby blight an official blight area become the stuff of art and like that that matters like it not it doesn't make the city better it doesn't make the so the stuff that happens in in um sorry is it called we didn't yeah we we isn't it we didn't, we didn't. Yeah. Uh, the thing the things that happen there i mean that story is amazing because it it takes you on one right and then it cuts you it cuts underneath you a totally different it turns journey. into a much more harrowing story than it starts it starts out as kind of just like a comedy a kind of sex yep. comedy basically <laughs> about a kid trying to lose his virginity on oak street beach yeah, all of his all of his unfulfilled yeah. dreams <laughs> all the different places where it didn't yeah. work out <laughs> and become something more harrowing so like that the, the art doesn't remove that the actual dangers and the actual difficulties of the city but it does allow the city to once in a while realize seem to realize our dreams for it We Mm -hmm. gazed out nonchalantly at the white-sailed yachts on the watercolor blue horizon or back across the outer drive at the lake reflecting glass walls of high-rises as if we took such splendor for granted, as if we took such Mm -hmm. splendor for granted. And then, you know, at the end of it, it's like back to blight. (laughs) We've had our great day at the beach, like sophisticates. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think, I mean, in Chicago, you get, it's... It's really, and you see this in in a couple of different characters in the story here, where like they never actually go anywhere near downtown. Yeah, you know the the city. You know, even by the sixties, it was like looming skyscrapers, and you could see them from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right, they're just looming above you, and yet you have you know 
kids who have never been there. It's you know a short L ride away, uh, but you have kids who never went to Oak Street Beach, never have gone down into the Loop. That's super common, and he talks about it here. And it, and it was it was still common when I worked on the West Side that lots of kids, you know, yeah. in spite of like staring in every day at these huge buildings, had never actually been into those areas. And I think part of what he's talking about here is that he was able to feel like he belonged there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the beach for, you know, he's, they're sophisticates with their band and their, you Mm -hmm. know, their, their emerging poetry that they're writing Uh, and they they feel like they belong there at least for, for a time Mm -hmm. Uh, and then even, you know, go for the day and then come back. Uh, But a lot of the other people in his stories, they don't even, they don't feel like they belong there at all. Like, and so for them, does the city ever really realize their dreams uh, or help them make them feel like they're. No, that's a really, uh, that's a really good point. Part of the challenge. It's a really good point. Cause the other guys, the other guys in this story. So again, it's, it's that opening sentence between those years between Korea and Vietnam. And there's the other guys in the story who are these older guys who are, are, sorry, Korean war vets who used to play softball and now are just too, basically they've been drinking it. They've been playing softball for their for their taverns, and now they're they've been at the tavern so long they're not really they can't play ball can't anymore. Play they all got beer bellies, and <laughs> and they're, they're they're a real image of of what happens if if the city doesn't allow you to realize your dreams of it. And mm-hmm. you know these guys are broken by the their experience and the neighborhood, the blight they've come back to, and that doesn't offer them anything. The writer Willie Vlotten talked once about, um, or more than once, he's talked about like being a, a kid. He grew up in Reno, Nevada, and he talks about growing up in Reno and like getting to a certain age where he could, you know, kind of sneak into the bars or whatever. And like there are these guys, these older guys there who seemed really cool. These guys in their kind of thirties sitting at the bar drinking, and when they sneak him a drink or whatever, they seemed really fun and cool. And he's like, then you get to that age and you realize how like unfun and uncool they are. And this is kind of this story performs that image of that as well because at the end. These guys really, you know, they're just there a couple times in the story. They're they're part of what I called the kind of fabric of the story with with music and stuff earlier. But they they're just there's a real brokenness and like these guys in this story who have these moments at the beach or have like they go. So you mentioned his girlfriend. He goes up north to um, see Debbie Weiss, who thinks that the the north side is better because the streets have names. So that's and his response to that is brilliant. There's so much truth in that. There's so much truth in that attitude. And I love like people on the south side, like, what how do you get around? Like people on the north side, like yeah. the, it's so funny because the south side, for the most part, all the streets are numbers. Yeah. Uh or the you know, the east-west streets and and up north. And I love that he she's like, Well, do you, you know, she's condescending to him, like, well, do you know how to get there? Yeah. Like as if like not having street numbers, like he's not smart enough to be able to figure it out. And he's like, no, oh, I know. But also, he isn't. And then I love the fact <laughs> that he actually gets lost. <laughs> um, but it's that's again like such a great little Chicago detail about like north side, south side. It gets uh, captured really brilliantly. Uh, a number lacks character, David. How can you have a feeling for a street called Twenty Second? She asked. She'd never been on the south side except for a trip to the museum. Like that's the answer. He doesn't answer yep, it in the story. The he doesn't answer, but the narrator answers it. Like, well, if you've only ever been down to the to the to the museum, then you can't. You don't you know, how could you know? How could you know that feeling? You know what's what's funny about that sentence is that 
22nd is actually one of the very few streets on the south side that is more popularly known by a name, mm. which is Cermak. Yeah. Uh, so most, you know, you'll get a lot of people be like, oh, yeah, Cermak. It's one of it's one of the few exceptions on the on the south side. Um, I really want to talk about hot ice because uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's there's a kind of I think. It, well, first of all, hot ice fits quite neatly with with blight as a kind of companion story. It's about a similar group of kids. Mm-hmm. But when yeah. you talk about a little older, yeah, a little further on, when you talk about writers from Chicago or Chicago literature, you're it, at least for me, and I think for a lot of others, you, it, there's always this kind of um, constellation you have to do. You're, you're always trying to fit them together because they're all writing about the city. Because there's so many great writers, particularly in the middle of the 20th century, from the city, who kind of a lot of the feeling about the city is shaped by these these artists. In a way that we were talking about, like the, the the dreams of the city are realized through its art, and you know I've mentioned James T. Farrell already, and Carl Sandburg, and um, we've done podcasts and a bunch of diff- other writers as well, um, and have more to come in this series. and And it's it's kind of easy to slide them in in ways that are not quite true some of the time. Like Saul Bellow, you know, is this in some ways a, a Chicago that people will like to state claim like, Oh, this guy's like Bellow. And I've heard Dybeck compared to Bellow, which doesn't really make sense to me, but, but Algren is the one who I think really like Dybeck is, is like the nephew of, of Nelson Algren. And I'll, t- I'll tell you a couple of reasons why I think that, and I think hot ice is the story that best does it. Um, and I'm just, oh, totally. I'm just trying to stop myself from talking about Nelson Algren too much, like, but cause it's not the Nelson Algren series. It's the literature of Chicago, but like, it's partly about the taking seriously those blight areas. Um, so Algren calls them the, the the lives of the people behind the billboards. And in fact, there's an image somewhere that he, um, mm-hmm. Dybeck uses that phrase somewhere in this in this collection. Though I can't recall off the top of my head exactly where. Huh. Um, he talks about someone. He talks about people being behind the billboards. It's just a brief little. I think it's like a little. It's a little tip of the cap to Algren. Yeah, well, and the image itself is so. I mean, I'm, you're you're riding on the L, yeah. and you have these billboards that are built to advertise to people riding on the L, and they're oftentimes right in front of people's back yeah. windows, and so like that's like what a great. I, I can totally feel that. Yeah, and like, and I think Dybeck's sympathy for those people and for the places and like the so like for Algren, it's it's you know, that Wicker Park, that corner of Wicker Park around Division Street, mm-hmm. um, another like super changed and changing oh, God, neighborhood yeah. from that time. It's unrecognizable from Algren's time. Mm-hmm. But, um, and the interest in, in the, in creating a kind of poetry out of that, the, the lyrical way in which both those guys write about these places without becoming, again, without becoming sentimental about it, but giving a lyricism to, to lives that, that is a kind of affirmation or a, it, it's affirming of, of the dignity of those lives lived in these squalid places is something that I think Dybeck does again and again in a way that really is in that same, I, I don't know, I'd be reluctant to call it tradition, but it's in the same kind of mode or the same kind of attitude, mm-hmm. you know, towards place that, that Algren has. And I really, I, I think that the comparison kind of ends there, I suppose, um, and I and I like I called him his, his like nephew, his like literary nephew, which I think is, you know, enough. And it's not that he's imitating or anything; it's just he's capturing a, a certain thing in a similar way that I like. And Hot Ice for me is the one that does it the most, partly because it it has echoes of that one of Algren's 
most famous stories, how the devil came down Division Street, which is about drunks. And it's about, it's a kind of an urban legend story. And this is a story of an urban legend about a young woman who, a young, I think, Polish woman who is taken out on a rowboat under the lagoon. I, I think so. Taken out under the lagoon by a couple of sailors who try, essentially try to rape her. And they, and she drowns escaping from them. And her father mm-hmm. carries her. And there's all, there's like, there's three or four different versions of this part told, and no one agrees on what's the true version because yeah. it's a, it's an yeah. urban legend. Carries her either on the streetcar or in a taxi or whatever to his, to the ice house that he owns and, and puts her in the freezer and covers it, uh, this block of ice that, that freezes around her, covers it with dry ice to keep it permanently frozen and then she becomes a kind of localized saint and it the the urban legend seeps yeah, into the catholic schools that these kids go to so even the nuns kind of know and respect this <laughs> urban legend and it's that's everything about it is is like pseudo supernatural it's and it and and Dybeck is a kind of master of this kind of thing of just taking you on this realistic journey that just tips at times into something something not necessarily surreal, but hyper real or or otherworldly, and then drawing you back into the realism of it. And again, this is like about the city realizing its dreams um, kind of moments. But there's a lot of characters in this long story. Yeah, he he takes, and I think he does it the most here. He he takes urban legends seriously. Yeah. Yeah, almost at face value in in a sense, but not. But even like he values them more than that, you know. Like so, yeah. it's this sort of, you know, like oh yeah, there's the you know the old guy, and you know there's there's some grain of truth in all of this. You know, maybe his 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 you know his daughter did die in in this way, and this is like really tragic thing, right? But but he's the he's the local ice you know supplier, so like there becomes yeah. this whole other element like, oh yeah, they say they keep her body back there, and you can see how this yeah. like would develop over time, and then all of these other characters start to weave into it it's it's driven a lot of it is driven by an old drunk antech the drunk, which again <laughs> antech is the name this is like another algren thing i mean it's it's not like it's a particularly rare name necessarily, but antech is the is the guy who owns the tug and mall in the man with the golden arm so oh, it's really? like a, so it's oh, like wow. he's, he's like a he's years, a secondary so. but important character in the man with the golden arm and and here he's there's a, a drunk called antec and i just kind of like antec the owner and antec the drunk here i just i like that resonance whether it, it doesn't mean much beyond that i just like it as a resonance but he's the guy who kind of drives the legend because he he's he's had his life saved by this this sainted woman and it got fired for it but <laughs> um, yeah he works he works for him yeah right? he's, he's he's like he winds up he's totally drunk and he gets locked in the uh locked yeah. in the ice box and for like Over the entire the weekend, weekend yeah. or you know three days <laughs> and the only re- way he survives is that she keeps his body yeah, warm. the kind of glow of her aura <laughs> keeps him warm and then on monday yeah. the her her old man unlocks and sees him in there and says you're fired <laughs> and that's the only words that they say the whole thing is yeah, this is like you can imagine this whole thing being told at, like at the whatever tavern you know oh totally <laughs> the um by the old guys sitting there, yeah. you know, wearing their old softball shirts yeah. and like, you know, slipping a little beard of the kids are trying to sneak in. You know, it's like the stuff of urban legend. But then he kind of like, there's this great, the, the way this story ends is they're going to tear down the ice house. 
So like mm-hmm. back to that. And in fact, it's this story that that line um, that I read at the beginning comes from boundaries remained intact while neighborhoods came and went. So this is like a boundary. It's one of those. This is one of those buildings that's been there forever. It hasn't been an ice house forever. And this is partly what's breeding the legend. It's like, even though the ice house isn't the ice house, like that, you know, it's, it's still she's the still there house, in yeah. the hot ice. And there's a great scene where they've all gotten little pieces of dry ice and are um, playing around with them and stuff in the street. And it, but they they go with Antec down to the ice house because it's going to be torn down and they can't stand the idea of the of this sainted body being demolished with the building. They need to. It's a desecration. Yeah, they need to. They need to like free her. You know, like in Blight, it's north to freedom. You know. Um, I think yeah, uh, North to Freedom yeah, was their just joke. The sophistic, yeah, North to Freedom, back to Blight, you know, um, and and they need to release her out of, she can't be permanently crushed under the Blight. They need to, to release her to Freedom. So they break in. The way that that part is told is great because it's told from the point of view of Antec, the wino. And like he sends them in and he's sitting out there with a bottle of wine that he finishes and throws again, the music of blight, he throws it and listens to the sound of it clanging. And it's, it's all his perspective, which is this kind of slightly muddled, but with that like momentary clarity of proper drunkenness. And he's, he's both watching (laughs) and imagining them doing what they're doing at the same time. So it's never quite real and never quite not real. And the, the end of this story, it doesn't ruin anything for anybody because it's like, the story is all these dieback stories are just about how they're told, not really about some cliffhanger that happens, but um, they push her on a, on the, the old like rusty rails that led in and out of the back of this place. And they, they push her body down this on a trolley that's covered in a tarp and it describes it. And then he knew now where they were taking her, where she would finally be released they were rushing through the waist-deep weeds, crossing the vast tracts of prairie behind the factories, clattering over bridges and viaducts. Below, streetlights shimmered watery in the old industrial neighborhoods. Shiny with sweat, the girl already melting free between them. They forced themselves faster, rowing like a couple of sailors. And like, I mean, that, that I love the vastness of the image. You, you can see almost the entire Midwest <laughs> across the prairies. And then, and these guys, it, it redeems the beginning of the story. They really are making her a saint in this moment with that simile, like a couple of sailors. She's been she's been killed by a couple of sailors at the beginning. And these kids of the neighborhood, the, the, the sailors are the real sailors. They're not part of the neighborhood. They're taking advantage of her, or the neighborhood, whatever. And these two kids are become real sailors in the simile, even though they're not real sailors, like a couple of sailors, part of the neighborhood. And it's just it just redeems the saintliness of the of the moment, the neighborhood, the trauma, whatever. I, I think it's just a wonderful, I don't know. I, I feel like I've just given you a lecture that you didn't ask for. <laughs> no, no, it's, I, I love that story. And then all of that weaves through the story of like, was it Eddie and Pancho? Yeah. Is it Eduardo? Yeah. And so you get, you know, here you, you start to see kind of the, um, they're, you know, these guys, I don't know, how old are they? Probably early 20s. Yeah. Maybe 20. Or, so uh, maybe even late The story teens, kind of uh, takes place over a, a period of a, of years because um, they, yeah. they're, they're younger at the beginning because it talks about Pancho yeah, being yeah, an altar boy. Pancho is. He's like, he's like a blissed out altar boy. 
<laughs> totally. And like the nuns all love him. Uh, and he's like, he can't do any wrong. Uh, and whereas, uh, Eddie's like, can't do right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, of course, Poncho's the one who gets himself locked up in Cook County jail, yeah. which is also in the neighborhood. Yeah. And too. it's a real, I the, mean, the jail is a real force in this story. It's a real character unto itself and a force and looms over everything. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's, yeah, no. So, yeah, so, so he, you know, he, the judge, what does the judge say? Like, you're too pretty to go to jail, yeah. but sends him to jail anyway. And, and well, the judge, like, kind of gives him, sense. like, three. This is very, this is a very all grand moment as well. The judge keeps saying to him, like, tell me this and I'll let you go. And he's sitting there with his tie tied around his head and a jacket that says something <laughs> on the back and, and just refuses all of the mercy that's being given to him. And disappears into the penal system. Yep. And he and he physically disappears from the book, yeah. but he, he continues to be there. And which is actually something that I something that I found to weave through this whole all of these stories is the the presence of things that are no longer there. Mm -hmm. He has this amazing awareness of the influence of things, and and I think this is you know when when you have people and and a culture that have been in a place for a while you have this kind of collective memory or this individual memory of things that have changed and gone. And so like Pancho continues to be a character in the book, even when he's not an active character in the book, he's, he's driving, driving the narrative in ways. And they're actually trying to go visit him by, you know, wandering around outside the walls and yelling, yelling into the prison yard that they can't see uh, and usually not getting any response mm -hmm. uh, except when they're Eddie gets particularly belligerent and starts yeah. being a, total jerk <laughs> to uh uh and you know saying all these really incendiary things to the guys inside who then start shouting back at him but they they circumambulate cook county jail mm -hmm. uh, which is at what california and um california and 26th and then it goes down to the i guess that's the uh it's the river but it's really it's the uh the sanitary canal, canal. Yeah. And so, but they 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 circumambulate that, you know, at multiple points. It's nice the that we got a siren going by in the background while you were talking about the jail. I feel like it added a little bit of uh, ambiance to our discussion. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> that story definitely. I love the weaving together uh, of all of these things, and it's the, sort of the legends, and then the con. So it's sort of like these guys they live this life, and they're you know trying to grow up and get jobs and be able to pay some bills. And then, but so much of their kind of understanding of the world is animated through this, this legend, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of, this is where they're from and who they're from. And yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful evocation. Uh, even though it's actually kind of grim, a lot of it is just, you know, they're, they're living a pretty tough life and you're talking about, you know, I mean, we're, you know, the most beautiful thing here is the, you know, the, the beatified body of a woman who died trying to escape being it's, raped. It's uh there's nothing particularly no, beautiful about but that it's, at it's, all. It's, again, it's like that—that's the connection to Algren that I think is interesting, and it's—it's it's not so much interesting as yep. the connection is just like a way of sort of synthesizing is that 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 recognizing recognizing the tension between that kind of the beautiful moments and the and the squalor and the whatever else, and not not falling into a trap of just of indulging either one of those things, but, but letting them live alongside each other in tension and, and letting those tensions be the things that drive stories and drive the poetry of the stories. It, it already, there's a, there's a good 
radio broadcast that you can listen to on the Studs Terkel archive with um, Stuart Dybeck from back in 1990 when this book came out. And, and Studs Terkel keeps circling back again and again to the epigraph to the, to the book, which is from Antonio Machado. And the English translation of it is out of the whole of memory, there's only one, excuse me, out of the whole of memory, there's one thing worthwhile, the great gift of calling back dreams. And that's kind of the, mm-hmm. the, the thing that's at stake in these stories. And then what you were talking about is that it's, there's the memory and then there's dreams, which are a kind of memory as, as that quotation would have it. And there's the calling back of those things together to create mm-hmm. something worthwhile. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. But um, I, I was going to suggest that we just have a quick talk about the death of the right fielder as a way of wrapping it up. Oh, man, it's such a wonderful. There's a few of these. Uh, that one. I love the little the little interstitial chapters, too. Yeah. But the death of the right fielder, you kind of it's almost like one of those interstitial chapters, but more fleshed yeah. out. I have an I have an uneasy, <laughs> an uneasy attitude towards the interstitial chapters, um, which is my own problem. Because they're great, and I, I don't entirely understand why they're presented that way, and it bugs me that I don't quite understand that, which is my problem. Because also some I, of them I are so either, good, except the outtakes one where he's an usher. Yeah. It's just like I, I think it's written over two pages, but they could fit it onto one. Probably yeah. is just it's such perfect writing and such uh, a lovely kind of care for for a you know. Who pays attention to the usher, right? I mean, it doesn't even the, the role doesn't even exist anymore, yeah. basically, in a movie theater, at least as described here. And yet for him, like he treats it with this that it's it's the greatest thing, right? For him, like it's that was his dream job as a kid. So he writes this like lovely little mm. description of the art of it. Yeah. And it's it's sort of like amplified and to the surreal extent, as if like that's the show, right? Yeah. That's that the most important thing in a film. Is the usher? Is the usher treading across <laughs> the the usher. treading across the popcorn yeah. in a way that doesn't uh, make a sound? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you're t- the the death of the right field. <laughs> it's just it's great and super American, super kind of kind of mid century American, yeah. I think, especially uh, and super kind of childhood grandeur. It uh, also what interests me in particular about this story, I can never get my students to talk about it um, for exactly the reasons that you just said. It's too American mm-hmm. for um, a group of students yeah. in, an, in an English university classroom to get their heads around. But it's yeah. it's a, a story that the thing that interests me so much about it is that it almost like sentence by sentence is oscillating between realism and total surrealism because it's about these kids playing baseball mm-hmm. and they at some point in the game they realize every time they hit it to right field the ball doesn't come back and so it already doesn't make any sense as a realistic story right like um, <laughs> yeah, i mean they go totally. out there and this kid is lying there dead and there's all this speculation it becomes another urban legend like how he died and they end up burying him in right field and like he's a soldier they plant a bat with a cap on it almost like it's like a cross with dog tags on it and like and <laughs> totally. and it's a it's a real it in like three pages, this story encapsulates all the things that we were talking about, which is why I wanted to to raise it as our kind of way of finishing up our conversation, because it's it's a hymn to like the lost people and the lost talent and the lost ambition and the and the lost 
possibilities of the neighborhood and the the people who you go to school with or grow up with who you think oh my god mm-hmm. they're the most talented thing or that or you know they're the most interesting person or whatever and they and they vanish and you don't know what becomes of them like poncho vanishing into prison um and this is like a kid who wasn't even that good he was playing right field because because nobody hits the ball out there in a, in a pickup game of baseball and he's still being he's still being eulogized as though you know he was the Roberto Clemente of the neighborhood, and mm-hmm. and it's a really beautiful thing, and it, and it and it can only be done as the in this like called up dream style that that Dybeck uh, creates for it, and I just I just love the story so much, and I whenever I teach it, I feel like does anyone want to talk about this story? And they all go mm-hmm. like like they want to demand like Professor Frank that they understand it on as many levels as I do. <laughs> it, it, it's so weighted in, it's so weighted in kind of that that time and place that I I'm, I can't imagine reading this as a you know a kid, you know a young person, you know twenty year old, you know somebody born in two thousand in England, mm-hmm. uh, sitting in the college class. Like I, I don't know what they would make of it. Uh, you'd have to. Like just the nuance, the the idea that well he couldn't have died of like leukemia because those are the truly tragic yeah. ones and really only the good ones die yeah, that yeah. way. You know, it's got to be something more mundane. You know, maybe it was a straight bullet. Well, yes, yeah, then it was like a sniper. <laughs> a sniper. <laughs> I love this idea that like you know leukemia is this like grand and noble way to die, and only the good ones go that way. But then also like the the idea that like you're the right fielder, like, you know, if you've got majority of people are hitting right handed and they're not very good at hitting, yeah. uh, you got there's very few of them. They're going to hit the ball into the right field. They're going to pull it in the left field. So the, you put your worst player out in right field and, and that way it doesn't have to do too much. Basically, um, there's, you know, there's all these subtle. Yeah, there's basically like a term's worth of lectures to give. Uh, in order that we can then at <laughs> the end of the term the read the story that's three pages long. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose that's like one of the things that's really so great about this this book of stories, um, The Coast of Chicago, and about about Stuart Dybeck's writing more generally is that there's just there's a wealth of stuff going on in these stories, and they're never that long, the stories. Um, I mean, there are longer stories and shorter stories in the book, but but there's the, the, you know, the longest story is like 30, 40 pages, and it's it would be word wise. It's it's shorter than that. And sounds it's broken up into sections, almost separate yeah. stories within it. But there's so much going on, and 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 so much to love in that kind of line by line, lyrical way, and so much to admire and and be challenged by on a on a thematic and and storytelling way. And it's it's a really wonderful book. Mm-hmm. He, I, I love the way that he takes. He takes seriously the kind of the mundane uh, experiences of people Mm -hmm. and he treats, you know, all the, uh, whether it's kind of gritty and and ugly or, uh, you know, you know, easily, easily identified as something beautiful, like a work of Chopin. He treats it all as kind of worth our attention and focus and care. uh, And they're often woven together and in ways that that are not, that are familiar to him, you could tell that it's all familiar to him, and it's, it's not nostalgic. Like kind of, I was, I thought at first, I was like, oh, this is this going to be like boomer nostalgia, but it really isn't. He just he takes the stuff of our daily lives, and especially of children's daily lives, and kind of fleshes them out, and it depicts it all as a kind of thing of beauty, warts and all. 
Gregory Miller, thank you so much for joining me on the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast. It's been great having you and great talking to you about the coast of Chicago. Thanks for having me, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.